one of the things that we talked about at Thanksgiving that we as a church want to be a gospel-formed and a gospel-shaped church. We're, we're formed by uh, the gospel. Everything that we do, we say, uh, is to be done in a way that communicates something that has been done internally and now is affecting us externally. And so I want it to be intentionally, especially during this season, to be storytelling as well. That we, we not only say, oh man, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but somehow that so happens to form us in such a way that we tell stories to our children, to our friends, our neighbors, those that we come in contact with. And so, friends, this is going to be the season of storytelling. This morning, we are going to be telling a story. It's kind of a sordid story. Uh, that some of you will go, ooh, I've got little ears. But it's, uh, it's an important story for us to hear as we are shaped by the gospel. This was included in Holy Scripture for your good. As we start thinking about Christmas and we start thinking about how uh, the gospel is found in Christ's coming, we, we, we start thinking about the different things that we've done, our, our different family traditions. One of the things that I always look forward to is, and it was completed yesterday, is the, the preparation of our family Christmas card. And we, I, I, we spend a little bit more money because this is one of those things you take great pride in, in saying, look at what God has done, look at these beautiful children, it's a gift that we have, and across the front it says rejoice, it's one of those Christian kind of words, and you know, we start getting, my mother-in-law even said yesterday she's already received her first Christmas card from Auntie Eileen, has already sent her first, has received her first Christmas card from Auntie Eileen. And it's like, who are those people that have already sent cards? And um, sometimes you receive these cards and you look into these cards and you go, that is an absolutely beautiful picture. Look at their people. Even their dog is somehow smiling. I want to be a part of that family. It is absolutely gorgeous. But what these photos don't, and they can't even tell you, is that there are struggles that these families have gone through, that they've wrestled with over the past two years, the past 12 months, the past month of their lives. After living through even some of my own personal and kind of family drama it's become obvious to me that these photos, these, these Christmas cards, and the, even the pictures that we post online are simply a highlight reel, right, of our lives. Nobody takes picture and just says, look at me sobbing, right? Look at me in my darkest times. We don't send those out during Christmas time. So, it's even, so I want us to remember it's even kind of fruitless for us to look at somebody else's picture and say, wow, I wish my family was just like theirs. No family and no extended family has it all together, right? Can we admit that right here? Nobody has it together. So I'm even willing to say and humbly say in humans, human terms, Jesus himself did not come from the most perfect family tree. Yet, if you received a, a postcard from Mary and Joseph, you'd probably think of them as the cutest couple ever. Here's, here's some of the 
pictures that you might receive from Mary and Joseph. Here's the first one. Ready, Carol? There, right? That, that would be one that the, the light is just kind of beaming in, and it's really gorgeous. Or the next one, everybody's kind of standing around, ooing and aahing. You know, Rembrandt did a great job. Look at that. Next one, the cave. Man, how did they get that light coming into the cave in such a perfect kind of way? Or if you are a hipster, you might be sending out this kind of one. Have you seen this one online? Right, right? Well, let me, please notice uh, the stable. What's on top of the stable? Solar panels, right, right. So here's, here's a little bit closer look into their lives, the picture they might have seen, you know. <laughs> Selfie in Starbucks, you know. And then the next one, you got to have the wise men with the Amazon boxes. And lastly, you got to have the shepherd, right, with 100% Angus. And uh, a sheep, that a lamb that is really well taken care of by its own knitted sweater. But the reality is, if you go through kind of the Ancestry.com of Matthew's gospel, you are going to see something totally different. It's not going to be this pretty kind of picture. No, in fact, you're, you're going to see some sordid stories, and you're going to wonder, how did they get in there? And so, stand with me, and we're going to read Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17. Matthew's version of a Hallmark card. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Sarah by Tamar, and Perez the son of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salome, and Salome the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoiah, and his brothers by the time of the departure to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim, the father of Shatil, and Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abuid, and Abuid, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eluid, and Eluid, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham 
to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So one of the things that is uh, immediately comes clear is that Jesus comes from a very long line of some seriously messed up people. If some of the lifestyles of the men in this list would, if you knew the stories, it would make your jaw just drop. Have you ever heard of Ahaz? Do a little bit of a search on Ahaz in your spare time. Or what about Rehoboam? Rehoboam single-handedly was able to devastate the whole united Israel. So under his reign, he devastated all of united Israel, and it became two separate groups. In fact, I think it was the angel who spoke to Joseph when he instructed him to name the child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, must have looked backwards and looked at this long line of dysfunctional people in Jesus' trees. The angel was going, Thank God he's coming, because look at that. But there's something else that is powerful about this list. We see a revelation of grace found in four very unlikely figures. I'm talking about Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. If Matthew had ransacked the entire Old Testament for some improbable candidates, he could not have discovered four more unlikely ancestors in Jesus' tree. Four unlikely people. No Jewish family would have used the stories of Tamar, Rahab, or Bathsheba as role models for their children. No mother would have said, ha, you be like Rahab. Oh, daughter, be like Rahab. Oh, Tamar, you know the story. Be like her. No self-respecting Jewish mother or father would have put their child to bed with stories about these women. Perhaps Ruth is being the one example. You know what else becomes clear as we look and read through these lists? There's encouraging hope that no family is too far gone for God to redeem. The fact is, when all is said and done, this long list of broken people ends with who? Jesus. The Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Trust me, no matter how jacked up, how messed up things seem when you gather with your family this holiday season, there's hope for you, and there's hope even for your family. So let's dig in by looking at the first person that is found in here, Tamar. I will give you an overview, but I really encourage you to look at Genesis 38 as part of, yes, your devotional life during Advent, Genesis 38. You might not be familiar with her name, uh, but nothing that you've ever read in the uh, grocery store tabloids or even the soap operas. This is not a, a days of the life, days of, days of our lives kind of thing. Nothing compares to the story of Tamar. 
So contrary to the official stance of Israel at that time, Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he became infatuated with a Canaanite woman named Shua. And as you're going to see, Judah was not one to deny himself of the simple pleasures for the sake of tradition. Shua became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son named Ur. It's kind of ironic that uh, he's named Ur because, you know, later on we're going to see that Ur is really going to err, and two more sons are going to come from this woman, Onan and Shelah. You got it so far? You see the family tree? Wanting to prove himself to be a good father, what does Judah do? He arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to be married to a young woman, our young lady, Tamar. Unfortunately for Tamar, to put it mildly, Ur was a complete jerk. So much so that God killed him. How would you like that? Moses put it even more bluntly. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. How would you like that for the story of your son or your son-in-law? He was so wicked, God did what? He smote him. How's that for Old Testament, King James? Totally smote him. He was wiped off the face of the earth. So what did he do? Whatever he did, it must have been serious because his execution was swift and it was just. So Judah, what does Judah do? Judah orders Onan, his secondborn son, and Ur's youngest, younger brother to have sex with Tamar. And you're going to go, whoa, 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 that sounds a little bit weird. But there was an Old Testament law called Leverite, the law of Leverite marriage, which dictated that if your brother died, you were responsible for raising up children for him in his name. It was, it was a way of offering mercy so that the wife, the family, would not be without any kind of care. The problem was is that Onan was about as evil as Ur. Of course, he was only too happy to gratify his, his sexual desi desires, you know. Wow, what a great law. But he had absolutely no intention whatsoever of shouldering the responsibilities of another son. With Ur dead, Onan stood to inherit everything. He was now the firstborn, in line to receive everything after his father passed away. The last thing he wanted was to have a son of Ur to take it away from him. According to Scripture, he said, so whenever he, Onan, went into his brother's wife, yes, that means what it meant, he would waste the semen on the ground so he would not give an offspring to his brother. What angered God was Onan's greed and his selfishness in refusing to fulfill his legal obligation in his brother's name. So what did God do? He, he smote him. He, he, he killed Ur and he killed Onan. So poor Tamar is found caught in the middle and Judah tells her just to remain unmarried until Selah, the third child, is ready to, old enough to be her husband. 
and do what Onan refused to do. What Tamar didn't know is that Judah had no intention of letting Shelah get anywhere near Tamar. Judah must have thought to himself, this woman is cursed. Two men in bed with her, two corpses. I don't want to lose another son, especially the only son that I have left. So in the meantime, Judah's wife died. Do you see how it just gets worse and worse and worse? One can't help but feel sorry for this man. He has lost two sons and a wife in a short span of time. And after the official period of mourning was over for Judah, his son or his friend Hira decided to give him a man weekend to the town of Timnah. It's kind of a coming out. Let's, let's get out of the darkness. Let's, let's get out, buddy. Come on. And perhaps it was Hira's idea, thinking that a change of scenery might just cheer up poor old Judah. By this time, Tamar was growing impatient. It began to dawn on her that Shelah is now a grown man by now, but Judah had no intention of letting him come within a stone's throw of her. She decided in her own mind, I need to take things into my own hands. When Tamar found out that Judah was going to Timnah, she put her sordid little plan into action. She figured out the best way to get justice was to exploit this widower's loneliness and weakness. So she dressed up as a prostitute. Merry Christmas, right? She covered her face with a veil and she took to the streets. Judah took the bait. Not knowing it was his daughter-in-law, he began to haggle with her over a price for her services. What, a, what an upstanding man, right? And Judah said in this haggling process, listen, I will send you a goat from my flock. What, what generosity, right? I'll send you a goat from my flock. And what does she kind of say back? She says, what, do you, what kind of an idiot do you think I am? I may be immoral, but I'm not stupid. You're going to have to leave me something as a pledge. Leave me something as a pledge that you will actually come through on your offer. If you leave me your seal and your cord and your staff that you have in your hand, I'll do it. And Judah says, okay. So Judah had sex with his daughter-in-law. If it weren't for the fact that this story is in the Bible, I probably would not be telling this kind of story from here. But that's not even the end of the story. Tamar gets pregnant. Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law had prostituted herself out as a, as a pr prostitute, and now she's pregnant. There is proof positive that she has sinned. So he gets what? He gets furious. And he demands for what? Her execution according to the law. He demands justice, justice be done. But what does Tamar do? 
Tamar being led out to execution cries out to Judah and demands to know, Judah, you want to know who the daddy is? You know want to know who's responsible for this? And he says, yes. And she says this, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Could you imagine the jaw dropping? The heart sinking? Please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Judah is busted. And he realizes that he is just as guilty as Tamar. And she's allowed to live. In fact, what does Judah even say? He says, she is more righteous than I. She's more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Selah. That's the sleazy part of the story, isn't it? Now for the stunning conclusion. Tamar gave birth to two boys, twins, whom she named Perez and Zerah. Sound familiar? They should, right? Remember the genealogy found in verse uh, 2 and 3? To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac was born Jacob, and to Jacob, Judah, and his brothers, and to Judah was born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Stop for a moment and just kind of let this all catch up with you. We love beautiful pictures, right? We love these, these beautiful kind of Christmas cards and these portraits and these little vignettes of, oh, Jesus, away in the manger, asleep on the hay. The cattle are lowing. There's sheep over there. The shepherds are coming in. This is beautiful. There's lights beaming in. This is gorgeous. And so what do we have right here? Jesus, according to his human nature, is the direct descendant of this ugly, perverted, sexual encounter between a man and his daughter-in-law. Some of you, should, this should just cause you to shudder. My father-in-law? <laughs> And this is the same Tamar that Scripture tells us is the great, 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 42 greats, great-grandmother of Jesus Christ. How's that for a perfect family tree? There is scandal in the tree. So I find it amazing to consider the background of these women that we're going to look at over these next few weeks in this list, this genealogy speaks so clearly of God's love for people who others might consider to be outcasts, outside of the grace of God, outside of possibility. David Turner said in his commentary this, God's grace in Jesus the Messiah reaches beyond Israel to Gentiles, beyond men to women, beyond the self-righteous to sinners. In saving his people from their sins, Jesus is not bound by race, gender, or scandal. That people like Judah and Tamar 
would be included in the line of the Messiah. Sends a very clear, strong message about the pure grace of God. Neither one of them deserved to be on it. But they're both found in it. Jesus came for the outsider. He is the outcast and is not ashamed to not only identify them, but to be identified with them. So what do we do with this? Through Scripture, the Holy Spirit illustrates that Tamar's history is pointing ultimately to Jesus, who is the Savior of sinners. Jesus is the one who deliberately associated with tax collectors who were notorious scandals. In fact, Matthew, who is the author of this gospel, was a notorious tax collector when Jesus called him. Jesus was known as the friend of sinners, prostitutes, and others in Matthew chapter 11. And when the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, expressed their disgust with this, what did Jesus say? He said this, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. And then he added in Matthew chapter 9, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to call the sinners. He did not mean that some were righteous enough to get into the kingdom of heaven by their own. No, rather, he wanted the Pharisees to see that they indeed, the religious leaders were indeed sinners who needed the Savior every but much as the tax collectors of their day. So you may think to yourself, and it's very easy because I could slip into this like that, I'm not as sinful as a prostitute. I'm not that kind of a swindler like the tax collector. I'm not like that. I might have my faults, but I'm not a terrible sinner. Be careful. That mistake is the mistake of the Pharisees. Their self-righteousness caused them to reject the Savior whom God had sent. The angel who told Mary and Joseph told Joseph that Mary had conceived a son and that you should call his name Jesus for he will save their people from their sins. Is saying, listen, wake up. This Savior is for you to benefit from the reason that Jesus came. You must, we must recognize in the first place that we have sinned against a holy God and that all of our good deeds, you put them all together, all your best things, it will not atone. For your sins. You need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Most of us, I'd say all of us, want to conceal the more disgraceful events and the more disgraceful people in our lives, don't we? We want to, let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about her. Let's not talk about him. Those are disgraceful and it's just filthy. It's a mess. It's dirty and I don't know what to do with it. Let's just kind of sugarcoat it. Put some powdered sugar on it and it'll all taste fine. 
We like to present a Christmas card version of our, our lives and so hide the scandals and the blemishes that bring us shame and resentment, pain and loss. But not Jesus. He goes out of his way to draw attention to Tamar, whose very name calls to mind the scandal and lewd activity. Why? I think to remind us, before Matthew even begins the story of the birth, why he came. Even in genealogy, God, God does this beautiful thing, beautiful thing of weaving together grace. He seems to redeem sinners. He loves to produce something beautiful out of unseemly, dysfunctional, degenerate family backgrounds. That's what God does. He loves to make all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called to His purposes. God loves to do those things. So now we need to look at this genealogy and we need to say, Lord, I'm, I'm a part of this story. How do I individualize? How do I personalize this story? We need to remember that we cannot believe the lie that your sin, your dysfunction, your family stuff, no matter what it is, is greater in its power to produce evil than God's grace in its power to produce good. You need to remember that nothing is irredeemable. Nothing is irretrievable. Nothing is irreparable when God is present. Nothing. Say that word. Nothing. Nothing is. Get that in your head. We need to remember that this is the God who spoke. And what happened? The whole world fell into place. And somehow we think there's no way that God is going to fix this mess. What? Really? Some of you are hearing this and you are convinced that you have failed once too often and you are, you are beyond the pale of forgiveness. I, I, there's just no hope for me. All this talk of holiness is this, this distant, far-off dream. And indeed, it's even a nightmare given my record of failure. You feel like you are a hopeless hypocrite. No. Don't believe the lie that your sin for, forever disqualifies you from usefulness to God in his kingdom. Try to envision, envision the sense of shame, the sense of reproach that Judah and Tamar must have felt as well as their public humiliation, right? It was not just a me and God kind of thing. There was shame horror in dealing with the community. But I think God would say, fear not, for I will turn your shame into praise. I will replace beauty for ashes, and I will bring forth a redeemer for all sin, even your sin, from what you have done. The hymn writer was right when he said this. God's great grace is greater than all our 
sin. His grace, remember this, His grace is greater than all your sin. But as we talked about uh, last week or whatever it was, uh, do we sin so that grace may abound? No, by no means. We don't. But His grace is greater than all your sins. So what are some lessons that we can learn from this? Here's the first one. God's plans are bigger than your mistakes. And aren't you grateful for that? We know how the story ends. How did Tamar assess her, her own life? I, I'm guessing that she assessed her life as a huge tragedy, right? There was all kinds of disappointment. There was bis betrayal. And her life is not what she planned it to be, right? And so many of us, I've, I've heard that in counseling and conversation. This is not how I planned it to be. This is not what I wanted it to be like. <laughs> Welcome to the story, right? But what? She did produce a son that turned out all right. And he had a son who 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 ultimately dot, 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 became the, the son of God. You see, I don't think you can assess your life on your lifespan. We're pretty good at that, right? What I love about Bible genealogies is this. If you zoom out and take a 42-generation approach, something changes. Sometimes we get so embroiled in the minute, the circumstantial details of our lives, and we just feel like our lives aren't what we want them to be, and we need what we need is a bit more of an eternal perspective. Pull back. I know it sometimes in the moment it doesn't really help right there. Man, I, but I just want to know, is this going to matter? Is God going to forgive? Is this going to change anything? Sometimes we need to just pull back and say, God, you've got an eternal perspective on my life. And I know that you work all things, all things for the good of those who love him. I know you do that. You see, God's plans are bigger than your mistakes, your, your sexual sins, your financial sins, your relational sins, your, or whatever they are. And sometimes I think we reduce God to the size of our biggest failure. But he's bigger than that, friends. The second thing that we can learn is this. It's not who goes before you. It's who you leave behind. I think some of us read stories like this and we can identify with them because we've come from dysfunctional families and dysfunctional situations. Raise your hand if it's true of you. Dysfunction, yeah. Welcome to the family. And at Christmas, a lot of us go back to those situations. We go back to those dysfunctional families and situations where it all brings that stuff back, right? And the truth is, some of you are here and you wonder if you are destined to make the exact same decisions that mom made, the exact same decisions that dad made. Am I going to be like my family? Am I going to be like that? I don't want to be like that. And you wonder if you've inherited all of their genes. 
And you ask, am I going to mess up in the same way that my family has messed up? Friends, be encouraged. Your mom is not you. I should get an amen right there. Your dad is not you. You are not them. You are a unique individual, and you don't have to make the same mistakes. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. You can, with the grace of God and with the help of God, leave a magnificent legacy with Christ's help. You can. Here's the third thing that we can walk away with. Look at Grandma Tamar. She's a part of the Messiah's genealogy. And so are you. It's not found here in in Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17, is it? But if you have put your faith in Christ, then according to Galatians chapter 3, you are a child of Abraham. You have been grafted into this genealogy and his church is your family. It's your messed up family, but it's your family. We are all sinners. And yet John writes in chapter 1 of, of his gospel, John chapter 1 verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's good news if you think about it. You have been engrafted into this family. You are part of Christ's family. You've been cut in, you've been wedged in, you've been taped up, and now you are part of this family tree. You can't imagine, friends, how important, and this sounds weird, You can't imagine how important you are to God's family. But some of you need to hear that. You are important. That's not diminishing Christ or or God's work. You are part of this family. And every member, if you think about the gifts and the talents and that we're all being built up into this spiritual family, we are critical parts of this family. You have divine genes. With Christ as your brother amazing news what good news this is Tamar is a beautiful old covenant illustration of what God would later say to Peter when clarifying the grace that was going to be extended to all people what God has made clean Do not call common. And that's his word for you and for me this morning. The amazing good news of Christmas is that Jesus came for the notoriously unclean people. He came for ill-deserving sinners like you and me. 
people with disgraceful pasts who believe in his name and he came to call them clean. Friends, this is the good news. And this good news is for you today. But this good news is not to be hoarded. Hear that. It's easy to come here dressed in our reds and greens and light Advent candles and sing uh, the first Noel around and kind of strum the guitar and have a tearful moment remembering our, our corn that we put into bottles and you know all those other kind of things that we do for our family traditions and keep it close to home and really nice and neat. But friends, this is the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you. But the world needs to hear this good news. The challenge is if this gospel is for notorious messed up, ill-deserving people who are in dire need of grace. Who better to bring that good news than those who are, have been saved by grace? Amen? So friends, I don't want to put this challenge out there and put a number to it, but this church should be full. Every one of you has a family member a neighbor, a co-worker, a classmate, a Facebook friend who's ill-deserving, notorious, and in need of this gospel of grace. I pray that this morning that God will so burden your heart with His grace that you cannot help but share it. This is our good news to be shared. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, this is good news. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit you will so impress it into our hearts that Christ came for the notorious tax collector, the woman who prostitutes herself, and for the self-righteous. Lord, I pray that we will find ourselves in the midst of this story and that we will know that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. But I pray, Lord, that it will compel us to share with the notorious sinner, the, the prostitute, the swindler, the self-righteous. And we pray, Lord, for gospel seeds this week to be planted in what the world might think are in unseemly places, in unseemly lives. But Lord, we trust you, the Lord of the harvest, that you will give life, that you will bring new life, and we will see new births take place, spiritual births here, right before our eyes. So Lord, we pray that your spirit would make it so. And we pray that you will find us ready, willing, and able to share it wherever we go. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
the beauty of the gospel is that if you are in Christ, you are a work in progress, right? And yet, as a work in progress, you are still invited to his table. There is not one person who is cleaned up and all nice and neat. I look across this congregation of friends and family and I go, we've got a lot of work to do. All of us. But yet he invites those whose hearts are soft and penitent. Who say, Lord, these sins are disgusting. Fix them. Remove them from me. They're not mine. These are old rags. Please put on the new cloth of Christ. So for those who are in Christ and desire to lead a faithful life, who are repenting of their sins, this table is open to you. So hear these words from 1 Corinthians, which should be normal to your ears and stirring in your heart that the one who invites you says these words. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Notorious sinners, ill-deserving, it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup of blessing. And pouring it out, he said this. This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So friends, the body of Christ, which is for you, the blood of Christ, which is for you, and we do this in remembrance and with thanksgiving in our hearts. Would those who are serving please come forward? Take a moment, examine yourselves. May the weight of your sin be heavy, but also know that the wings of grace fly high for those who seek his forgiveness. Come, come, for all things are ready.